quick heads up before I begin. Uh, the story featured on this episode is about rape. It's a challenging story for sure, and some people may find it difficult listening. Okay, on with the show. This is How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling. How Sound is a co-production of PRX and Transom. I'm Rob Rosenthal. One of my favorite radio writers is Greg Warner. To this day, I vividly remember the opening line to a story Greg produced several years ago. It was about the potential for an Ebola outbreak in Kenya. If Ebola does come to Kenya, it'll almost certainly be rolling a suitcase. Such a good opening line. In fact, I still remember something Greg wrote back in 2003. He was a student of mine back then. He produced a story about a guy who held the record for the longest number of consecutive days skiing. Listen to the way Greg describes how burdened by the effort the guy is. Everybody's dressed for the spring weather. And Paul seems out of place in his thick rain gear, black helmet and prescription goggles. But it's not just his outfit that sets him apart. It's that everybody else is having fun. Whereas Paul, climbing up the stairs with his skis on one shoulder, seems resigned to the task. Sisyphus in a ski suit. Sisyphus in a ski suit. Ha, so economical, so clever. It's genius. Greg is a reporter for NPR. He was their East Africa correspondent for four years. Now he produces Rough Translation, which NPR describes as a podcast about how the things we're talking about here in the U.S. are talked about elsewhere in the world. Greg's writing is still top-notch. Most recently, I noticed a writing sleight of hand he put to great use. It's a tricky maneuver. A less skilled writer can really make a mess of a story using it, but Greg pulls it off not just once, but several times in a rough translation episode called The Congo We Listen To. Basically, it's one of those really hard-to-summarize stories, but the Democratic Republic of Congo is often known in Western media for one thing. It's known as sometimes called the rape capital of the world. A rape is used as a weapon of war in the long-running off-again, on-again conflict there. And this is about a, a, a young woman who came to look into one of the, actually the largest mass rape on record, and suddenly wondered if it was true. Here's a short clip from the opening of the episode. It contains Greg's first writing sleight of hand. You might not even notice it. It's so smooth. Our story begins with two motorcycle taxis headed through the forest in the Democratic Republic of Congo. On the lead bike is Laura Heaton, who's then a researcher for an NGO. Okay, shall I? I was um, traveling in this remote part of eastern Congo with my Congolese colleague. His name's Christian. He's on the other bike. Also a researcher for the group that I um, was a consultant with. And we just happened to be doing this research in the same region where this absolutely horrifying attack had taken place eight months before. More and more women are emerging from hiding in the forest to report that they were gang-raped by rebels in a mass assault. It's there, right there, when the story transitions from Laura Heaton's story about riding on motorcycles to context and background. Here, listen again. And we just happened to be doing this research in the same region where this absolutely horrifying attack had taken place eight months before. More and more women are emerging from hiding in the forest to report that they were gang-raped by rebels in a mass assault. This writing technique is called the broken narrative. It's a handy way to integrate information into a story. Think of the broken narrative this way. A story starts. 
this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And then you step away from the narrative, provide some context, and step back. Then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, step away again, more context, step back again, and so on. In the Congo we listen to, the narrative follows the story of Laura going to the village on a motorcycle. This happened, then this happened. Then Greg breaks the narrative, steps away, and inserts context. How do you go and find a moment in the character's story where you can leave it? She sounds in that moment like she's um, remembering it. It felt like a moment where she retreats a little bit from the stage. Not, I mean, you know what I mean? Like she, she doesn't own the space completely in a really good way. So it's just like she leaves room for something else to come in. When I put the the bit of drone underneath her, that it felt like something that was in, in her mind. And we just happened to be doing this research in the same region where this absolutely horrifying attack had taken place eight months before. More and more women are emerging from hiding. Okay, so when the break in the narrative is over, how does Greg step back? Well, let's pick up the story in the middle of the news montage, the montage followed by some more background, and then keep an ear out for how the narrative of Laura's journey picks up again. 300 armed men arrived in Lavungi. A renegade Rwandan militia. Occupy the Congolese town of Lavungi. A village of 2,000 people. This attack happened in August 2010. In a small village called Lavungi. And over the course of four days... Unacceptable brutalization of the population. Gang raping more than 150. Raped more than 200 women and girls. The numbers, they were rising, rising, rising. The number of women now stands at 242. The numbers finally settled, according to the official UN report, at 387 rape survivors. It was the largest case of mass rape ever reported in eastern Congo. This is an incident that... It placed Congo on the map, I think, even for Americans who hadn't really heard much about this conflict. What Laura wondered, reading this story, was what happened next? Was the community in a better place now? What had happened with all of these women? Did the international spotlight make any difference? There was this report in the Paris Match magazine that was like all of these glossy pictures of these women looking totally depressed and sad and these children standing next to them and the headline was the raped women of Lavungi. Laura would stare at this photo into the eyes of these women then behind them at the thatched huts of their village. She'd scanned the news for follow-up stories about Lavungi but didn't find any. And so we decided to to go out there. We had time. We were relatively close. It's about an hour and a half to two hour motorbike ride. Another perfect handoff. That step back into the narrative works because Greg takes the last thing he says, or almost the last thing he says, the name of the town, and connects it right back to her trip to that town. In other words, his steps away and steps back aren't leaps. They're just that. Steps. She'd scanned the news for follow-up stories about the Vungi, but didn't find any. And so we decided to to go out there. We had time. We were relatively close. It's about an hour and a half to two hour motorbike ride out of town. And I'll pick up the next section of the story in just a moment, but I'd like to return to the question I asked Greg earlier. At what point do you break the narrative? Now, in the first example, Greg said he liked the tone of her voice. That, in tandem with what she said, opened a door for stepping away. More frequently, a writer will break the narrative during action 
preferably rising action, where things are getting tense. Or to put it another way, you leave the narrative at a point where the listener wants to know what happens next. They'll sit through other information, waiting to pick up the story again. Now, in the case of the Congo we listen to, Greg doesn't build rising action in the next section. He builds rising confusion, I'd say, and surprises. Here's a lengthy excerpt. It was just Christian on one bike and me on another. In a very risky road where nobody was passing. This is Christian, Christian Kilundu. And uh, anytime you could be ambushed by rebels. But she was not afraid. You get to Luvungi and it, it's like the market town in the area. As soon as we arrive, we're ushered into a hut with a thatched roof to sit with the village elders. And Laura had tons of questions. How was the village doing now? What sort of response came and sort of how the community is coping. But the elders ignore her questions. They simply say they've lined up women to tell again the story of the mass rape. We're getting them ready to speak to you. And we said, well, that's okay. We don't, in fact, need to do some sort of detailed interview with raped women. And they were like, well, we've already made the arrangement and there are these three women. You know, you absolutely should talk to them. So she and Christian are led out of the hut. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember, I remember that time. And they cross the street to another hut. We were seated in the baraza. Called the baraza. You know, just in a traditional place where people always sit. There were some bench types of things. It's all set up for this kind of interview. They brought in one woman. We started interviewing. Laura pulls out her notebook. It was a very strange experience because we didn't ask a whole lot of questions, but we were getting all of this detail, like... I remember, she said, where men were putting their hands. She said they kept putting their hands up into my stomach. But she said it was such a... There was just like a a weird emotional connection that was sort of missing. So that interview ends. Another woman is escorted in. Laura turns to a fresh page in her notebook. And this time she doesn't even get to ask a question. The woman just starts right into a rape story faster than Christian can translate. I kind of thought most likely what it is is because these women have just told this story so many times they're really desensitized to it. And when that woman's finished and a third interview starts and the same thing happens, Laura starts noticing in herself the very last thing that she expected to feel when she arrived here. It was... Doubt. Doubt. Something is amiss. It felt so insensitive and so confusing that I maybe would have just left it. Insensitive to whom? To the women, to somehow suggest that I didn't believe that story. And I was talking to my colleague, like, once we were away from the elders and away from the women, I just said something like, that was a strange experience. Christian looks at her. He does not look confused or hesitant or awkward. He was furious. I, I, I thought that these women were trying to lie to us, you know. He thought they were lying, that they had not actually been raped. And he, being Congolese, I think, felt like he could ask these questions that I don't know that I would have ventured to ask. That night, back in the guest house in the main town, 
It's Christian who suggests that they might want to talk to the hotel proprietor. His name is Father Pascal. He is actually a Catholic priest. The guest house is on the compound of a Catholic church. He's Congolese. He's from the area. He knows everybody. So we went into Father Pascal's office, and he has a really round belly and his T-shirt with a faded picture of the Virgin Mary on it and a big cross. And so Laura tells the priest... We had a very strange experience, the Lumvungi today. And this priest was like, well, that's because the situation is not at all the way that it was reported. And that's when he started telling us very matter-of-factly that it, the story had been massively exaggerated. And do you remember what he said? Did he say that it was massively exaggerated, or was he... I mean, how did he say it? He started talking about the theater right from the beginning. It's like what you do when you're in theater and you need to convince someone of your character and you, you, sh- you put on an act because the, the white people wanted to meet the raped women. Okay, so that's a long swath of narrative following Laura's journey. Her discoveries add to the complexity of the story. And Greg says each step leads listeners to a new question. To me, this was a very... Uh challenging moment because emotionally uh, a listener is still focused on the doubt question it's like wait a second why did she feel that doubt and how should I feel about her feeling that doubt and how does that compute with my understanding of how these stories should be received and the power dynamics here and all the kind of questions and then and then there's the just the sort of the reporting aspect of it, like, well, wait, what happened? If that didn't happen, well, what did happen? So there's that question. But then what this priest says is something really crucial to the entire story, which is that the Western representatives are implicated in this. As those questions pile up, arguably the listener wants answers, wants some resolution. Well, that allows Greg a chance to break from the narrative step away, and answer one of those questions. Who are all these people that are coming to Lavungi? Western aid workers and journalists were focused on this huge crisis across eastern Congo. Sexual violence as a weapon of war. Weapon of rape in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Armed groups of rebels as well as Congolese soldiers were terrorizing whole villages. It is a country that's been dubbed the rape capital of the world. Mass rape was a battlefield strategy. Visiting U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton says the U.S. is committed to ending rape. The fact that Secretary of State Clinton wanted to come to Eastern Congo because rape was being used as a weapon of war. The United States condemns these attacks and all those who commit them and abet them. That was bringing a lot of attention to Congo. To step back to the narrative, Greg easily links the international response to the aid workers staying in the guest house. And poof, we're effortlessly in the scene again with the priest. That's where Laura's narrative continues. And this attack in Lavungi, the largest mass rape on record, had brought foreign journalists and aid workers and a team of sexual violence experts from the UN all coming to stay here in Father Pascal's guest house. I said to him, like, all of these people have been coming and staying in your guest house, so why did you not share this perspective and with them? And he said, no one asked me. And frankly, look at my situation here. Like, we have the nicest guest house in town. I have a land cruiser. My truck has been rented. My rooms have been full. No one asked me. So the way in which I had built it originally, and for most of the drafts, was that the priest finishes, you know, like he's like, no one asked me. 
And then I think I wrote some narration and said, well, there's maybe a reason no one had asked him. And, there, you know, rape is a major... It was a much more of a final, you know, okay, the priest has had his due. He's now off the stage. And now I'm coming on to give you information. It was more like that. But because I think more that I wanted to lean into that white, the white people that wanted to meet the rape women moment, it seemed more natural to move it up and and to contain it within the priest's scene. I suspect you've encountered stories that employ the broken narrative. It's a common approach in magazine writing, for instance. Frequently, in those articles, the narrative sections run for quite a while, and the breaks run for quite a while. They're blocky, if you will. That's not a critique, it's just how they're structured. Big sections of narrative and big sections of context. Greg actually does that later in this story. But what's clever about Greg's use of this technique in the examples we've listened to is that the breaks don't take very long. They're short. I mean, it feels like less of an interruption. It feels more like, okay, don't worry, I'm not going to fill your backpack with a bunch of rocks. I'm just giving you a little, like a sandwich and maybe just a a little like granola bar just quickly just throw it in there just in case you get hungry like I'm not loading you up I like your analogy about the the rocks what did you say rocks I don't want to load you up with rocks in your backpack oh yeah sorry so so my wife is a writer and uh, when she went to Iowa writers workshop one of the things that uh, her professor of hers Frank Conroy used to say was that a short story is like a backpack and you give people just what they need to take the hike with you, you know, don't overload the backpack with more and don't give them too little because they'll be stuck starving or, you know, in the middle of the hike. Um, Just give them what they're going to need so that they can finish successfully. And so, yeah, that's that's my analogy, I think, for information in a story. Huh. Interesting. You could have taken all of this context, this information that you've been weaving out in and out seamlessly uh, through the narrative, you could have put it in one big honking section, like just one big block. Like we could have just followed her narrative for a while, and then we come to this big block uh, with all this information in it. And I thought you were going to suggest that it would just feel like I've loaded up someone's backpack with a bunch of rocks. Like it no longer feels like we're moving forward, and the story gets weighted down. But by spreading things out, uh, it never feels like that. Yeah, you know, there's this phrase that I think we often resort to, like, um, I mean, there's many iterations of it. One is like, now to understand what just happened, you know, that's one version of it. Or now, um, before I get to the next part of the story, I need to just tell you one thing, like, almost like a, don't worry, guys, I just need permission from your brain to tell you some information. But I, I feel like, and I've done that and I've written those exact sentences. You know, they're on the air. I'm not, I'm not like, but I do think that those are a total crutch. Like, I don't think we should, we should have to do that. It should be just, if we know the question that's on the audience's, the listener's sort of mind, then you just answer it. You don't have to ask permission to give that information. And so you could put it anywhere. Uh, really, it doesn't have to be in a separate informational section, um, you know, where, where you've like cl- cleared the brush. NPR's Greg Warner of Rough Translation. I want to leave you with a warning. Uh, The broken narrative is risky writing, especially the way Greg does it in short bursts. The risk is the story will fishtail. It will wiggle back and forth like a fish's tail when you pull it out of the water. And fishtailing makes a story hard to follow. 
So before you try it yourself, I'd listen through this episode again, or for that matter, listen to the entire episode of The Congo We Listen To. It's quite stunning. And as you listen, notice how Greg steps away and steps back so effortlessly. Like I said, Greg's a great writer. This season of Rough Translation recently wrapped up. Seven solid episodes. If NPR is taking votes on whether to produce another season, I vote yes. Twice. Greg wrote an incredibly useful article at Transom about producing stories with non-English speakers. It's called Thoughts on Translation. I've put a link at the post for this episode of How Sound. This is How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling. It's produced by PRX and Transom. John Barth is my editor. He says, why did I check my email when he sees a new script come in for me? I record at WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, the radio center of the universe. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thanks for listening. From PRX. And Transom.org.